Cool. Well, man, it's good to be back here. Good evening, everybody. Um, I feel like it has been forever uh, since I've had the opportunity to just stand here and get to preach to you guys. I love preaching the Word of God, and you are my favorite people to preach the Word of God to. Um, so as I was thinking about that, I actually did a little bit of math, and I only had to take one math class in college, so I'm not the best at it, but um, if, if my math is correct, it's actually been 70 days since we were all together like this that I actually had the opportunity to preach to you. So uh, it's 10 weeks ago, that was back that first Sunday before Thanksgiving, um, so it has been a while. I know we've uh, been through people going away for Christmas break. We've been through uh, people getting sick with COVID. The church has gone online for a couple of weeks, all this kind of stuff. But man, what a blessing it is to be here together tonight. Um, and I truly believe that. I'm, I don't, I'm not just saying that because it's one of those things that's like, oh yeah, pastors say it's a blessing to get together. Like, I really, really do believe that there is blessing in us coming together. Like, there's something special about the church gathering together. I don't know if you've sensed that uh, even more over the time that we've had to be separated some, but I know that this season of COVID, uh, which seems like it's been dragging on forever, has made me appreciate the church, and particularly this time where we just get together as a large group and gather, probably more than I've ever appreciated it before. And so... I don't know what it is, but I think there is something special about the fact of just coming together, that, that we say, hey, we're going to worship our God together. Like, what an awesome opportunity we have to raise our voices together with all of these other Christians and sing to our awesome God. And there's something special about, even though I know that you could be watching this online, and, and many of you are watching it online, there, there just seems like there's something different that the Spirit does sometimes uh, when we're all together in the room, focusing our hearts and our minds on the Word of God and what He has to say. And so I believe that God wants to do something special tonight. Um, I really do. Like, I believe that God wants to change the world in part from something that happens here tonight. And I'm not saying that this is the most important thing going on in the world right now or anything like that, but ultimately the world changes through people that consistently take small steps of obedience and following the Lord. And I don't know what kind of ripples there are going to be that come out of our meeting tonight, but I hope that this meeting tonight isn't just something we do because we've gotten used to having a Sunday routine of gathering, but rather that we'd actually see the value of why we're here. And so I come here with expectation, and I hope that you do too. Tonight I want to paint a picture for you of what I think that the world can be. A world that, that, that could be built. As a matter of fact, even better than that, it's a world that Scripture says is going to come. Like, I, I want to paint a picture of, of a future that's so much better than the current reality that we're living in right now. You know, tonight uh, is a night that we would call our Vision Sunday. Essentially, my task is to help kind of cast vision for us as a church to help you uh, get the binoculars out, to look way down the road and say, hey, what is it that we're actually trying to accomplish? Where are we going? I want to get you excited about the things that the Lord wants to do and, and specifically how I believe he wants to use our church to do that. And so as we get together in our life groups and our Sundays and all these different things, all these ministry activities that we do throughout the year, sometimes we have to take time to just step back and remember why it is that we're doing what we're doing. You know, the pace of life can be uh, so fast that I think a lot of us end up living very, very busy lives with very, very little purpose. We're always buzzing, always going, but not always knowing why we're going or what we're moving towards. 
I think that for a lot of us, we could treat schoolwork like this as a perfect example of what I'm talking about, right? Like you come to college, some of you just came to college because your parents told you to or because everyone else in your high school was, and that's why you ended up here. But for others, you came to college because you said, hey, I know that there's this certain career that I want to have, and I, I have to educate myself. I have to get a degree to be able to do that. And so you have a vision for the future, saying this is what I'm going towards. But then you get to college, and you start to get all of this work that's piled onto you, and the demand starts to become so much that you kind of forget why it is that you're here in the first place. And all of a sudden, all you care about is just getting that work done. You're not really concerned about learning it and retaining it for a lifetime so that it will help you in your career in the future. But rather, you're just concerned about cramming the knowledge in, getting an A on the test, and moving on. I tell you, I speak from experience, okay? That was my educational career. Um, the reality is that that can be effective at getting you through your tests. That can be effective at getting your grades, but is it really helping to build something that's truly productive in your life? Is it really helping you to, to excel in the career that you're trying to move towards? You can keep your head above water this way for a while, but if you don't recast the vision, you're going to lose motivation. And you're either going to hate what you're doing but keep chugging along, or you're going to burn out entirely. Reminding ourselves of the why is so important. And I don't think that churches are immune to short-sightedness. Churches have all sorts of activity, right? Like there's a lot of stuff that we get used to doing. There's uh, our normal gatherings that we do Sundays and Thursdays, and there's other ministries that you can get involved with, and you can serve in all these different areas, and there's wonderful things that are going on. But if you forget why you're doing all of that, then what, what's the point of it? We have to be able to answer these two questions. Why does this church exist? And what are we working to accomplish? You see, if we, can't ask, if we can't answer why does this church exist, then we're really kind of just like people running on a treadmill, right? There's a lot of activity, but you're not getting anywhere. And if we can't answer the question of what are we working together to accomplish, then we're like a bunch of people that are all in the same canoe but are paddling in different directions. The boat's going to move, it's going to go somewhere, but who knows where it's actually going to end up. So tonight's the time for us to clearly state why our church exists and what it is that we're trying to accomplish. I hope that this won't be a shock to any of you, right? Like, I hope that as you've been involved with this, it'll make sense what it is that I'm going to preach tonight about the vision of what we're trying to hope uh, that this world will become, what we're trying to move towards. Because frankly, it's not a new vision. It's not even our vision. It's God's vision, Trying to cast vision for what our church hopes to see the future become is actually kind of easy. All you have to do is open up your Bible and say, God, what do you see the future becoming? And I just want to get in line with that. We exist for him. And so our vision as a church for where we want to go and what we want to do must be the same as where God wants to go and what he wants to do. So with that being said, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to give us his vision for the future and see how we play in that reality. God, we love you, and I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you're here with us. God, I thank you that uh, you have a beautiful vision for the future, that you know what you're doing, that you are not uh, put off track by anything that happens, any sort of setback, no matter how different our world may look at any given time, it does not change what you have planned for the future. So Lord, as your church, I pray that you would help us to be steadfast. 
God, that you would help us to be people that uh, have the same vision for the future that you do, that we have the same confidence that that is going to come about that you do. And Lord, that we wouldn't be dictated by different setbacks or discouraging things that may ever happen in our lives or in the world around us right now. So God, give us clarity tonight. And I pray that you would capture our hearts. God, just capture our hearts and our minds with what it is that you want to do, because God, we want to be a part of it. I thank you that you even invite us to come and be a part of your mission. So we love you, Lord, and we ask this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, does anyone here know what the first recorded sermon of Jesus was in both Matthew and Mark? You don't have to raise your hand or answer in a crowd this size, but... It's a real short, sweet, simple sermon, much shorter than mine are. Um, But if you go to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, here, this is Jesus' first sermon that we have recorded. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew records it even uh, more succinctly. Matthew 4, 17 says, uh, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, in both of these accounts, they're showing us Jesus had just come out of this time of fasting and prayer for 40 days in the desert. He'd been tempted by Satan. He withstood the, uh, the three different temptations that Satan threw at him. His friend, John the Baptist, has been taken into custody uh, by Herod. We'll get into that later. And what Jesus comes out preaching is this message, simple message. The kingdom of God is at hand. He says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The message is pretty simple, right? It has two basic components to it. Number one, the kingdom of God is at hand. Number two, repent and believe the gospel. The first is a statement informing the hearers of a very important reality, and the second is the call to action in light of that information that they've now become aware of. So let's dive into a little bit, uh, a little bit more into each of these statements here. First, this idea that the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? Like, what is it that Jesus is even getting at with this statement? <clears throat> now, not to get too deep here, but it's honestly kind of simple. The kingdom of God is the realm where God is king. It's the place in the society where his will is perfectly done. You see, it's not that God isn't already king. We know that God is, is the true king over our universe. He's the creator. He has, he has ultimate authority. He has ultimate power. But the world that we live in right now, most of us don't live as if he is king. And so in a sense, you could say, yes, he's king, but his kingdom isn't really what we're seeing so much here. Certainly, as Jesus was going and preaching uh, to this society... <clears throat> It was a society that was all sorts, uh, full of all sorts of sin and brokenness. And many, many people, most people living as if God is not king. Now, the Jews that Jesus preached to, uh, when they heard this, would have been excited about this. They would have had an idea of what Jesus was getting at when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Because this is something that they were expecting. They knew that the world was not as it's supposed to be. Right? You could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We see that this is the first time that Adam and Eve sin against God, and they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. We see that for the first time, they've rejected him as king, and they've made themselves king. 
And so what happens? Not only are they cast out of the garden, but if you look at what Adam's curse is, it even says that the ground is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. And so the scripture shows us that creation itself, even the the animals and the plants and everything like that are suffering under the curse of sin. But there's this hope. As a matter of fact, the prophets have enlightened us to this hope that one day it's it's not going to be that way anymore. That there's this true and perfect kingdom of God that's coming where everything is going to be in perfect submission to his rule. Isaiah gives us a glimpse of this. Look at what he says here in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 4 through 9. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lay down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So this is just a glimpse. I could go to a lot of other places in the Old Testament prophets that speak to this kind of a kingdom that's coming. That there's some day, look at this crazy transformation, right? Like, look at this place. It's a a place where wolves are laying down with lambs. It's a place where kids are playing with snakes and helicopter parents aren't freaking out about it. Uh, the, The ruler is righteous and faithful. We see that the poor and the afflicted are no longer oppressed. The wicked are done away with. They're not here in this society. Lions are chilling with fat cows, and they're having a good time together. Look at this. This is, this is the perfect picture of peace. This is the perfectly restored kingdom of God that we're looking forward to. And so Jesus comes and he proclaims to an oppressed people that the time had come for this era to be ushered in. He's preaching this message to Jews that are living under oppressive rulers right now that we know is the Roman Empire. And so if you're a Jew living under the rule of the violent Roman Empire, this news couldn't be more welcome to you. He's saying it's at hand, it's here. This stuff that you grew up reading about in Isaiah, some of the other prophets, it's at hand. Get ready for it. Now, we hear this, and we may not be living under the thumb of an oppressive foreign ruler or anything like that, but we can look around at our world, and I can tell you, man, I long for the kingdom of God to come. And I may not be, I may not have it as hard as the Jews did 2,000 years ago living in their society, but I can look at my society and the world that I live in today and I see the brokenness of it and I can say, yes, come Lord Jesus, we need that kingdom of God here. You know, we've been living in the midst of a global pandemic for almost a year now that's killed vast numbers of people, disrupted our lives in all kinds of ways. Political unrest simmering around the globe, all the way, even here in the United States, we had our own Capitol building stormed a couple weeks ago. Kids are growing up, bullying is a major problem in our society, about 20% of middle and high schoolers report that they have experienced it. 
Despite all of our wealth and technology and things that are supposed to make life better, depression is extremely widespread, with over 16 million Americans reporting that they have at least one major depressive episode a year. There's rampant injustice. All kinds of uh, this thrives around the world. Here's a few striking examples of injustice, people treating each other in a way that is totally against what the Lord would have. According to the World Health Organization, there's about 73 million babies aborted worldwide each year. 73 million every year babies are aborted. The International Labor Organization estimates that anywhere between 20 to 40 million people are in modern slavery right now. And this includes things like uh, forced labor and sex trafficking most of the time. Speaking of sex slaves, about half of sex trafficking cases in the United States involve children. Many of these sex slaves help to supply the massive demand that we have for pornography, which is an absolutely massive problem of almost unfathomable proportions. Estimated that over 90% of men use pornography. It's a growing trend amongst women as well. I could go on and on. I haven't even touched on the uh, drug addiction problems and the murders and wars and poverty and disease, but you get the point. You and I both know that we are living in a world that seems very different from the kingdom of God. There's not a person in this room that hasn't been affected by some of the brokenness that I've just documented. And in fact, many of us have not only felt the pain of that brokenness, but we have been or may even continue to be people that actively help to perpetuate it, even if we wish we weren't. And we realize that not only are we victims of an unjust society, but we are actually responsible in many ways for helping to create that unjust society. So this is the reality that we're in. Now, what we read from Jesus, his sermon, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. He preached that 2,000 years ago. Where is it gone? Did we miss it? Did it come and go away? What's going on? Because the world that I live in right now doesn't seem like the world that Isaiah was describing. You know, it's interesting. If we were to look at uh, this sermon that Jesus preaches, both Matthew and Mark record the context of it. And they both mention this fact that John had been taken into custody. Let's go back and look at Mark 1, 14 to 15. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now Jesus comes and preaches this after John's been taken into custody. What this means is his friend John the Baptist who was a forerunner to him that had been telling people about this Messiah, Jesus, that was coming. He proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, guess what's happened to him? He has been put in jail by this evil king named Herod. And the reason is because John was rebuking Herod for marrying his brother's wife. He got his brother's wife to divorce his brother and marry him. And John's saying, that's not how things are supposed to be. So he rebukes him. The wife doesn't like that. And so she gets him to go and jail John the Baptist. He's sitting in a jail cell. You know, it's interesting because we, we see these two people in this story that are living under very different worldviews, and they're living as if there are two different kings, right? We see John is living as if God is king, which is why he has the boldness to speak out and say, Herod, what you're doing is wrong. I know that you may be an earthly king, and you think that you can do whatever you want, but there is one king, and he says that what you're doing is wrong, and he has the courage to stand up against it. Well, Herod is living as if he's king. 
And he says, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to throw you in jail because I don't like what you have to say. Now, the fact that John was in jail as Jesus was preaching about God's kingdom being at hand brings us back to the tension between what Jesus was saying and what John and so many of the rest of us are experiencing. There's seemingly some mixed messages here. John believes that Jesus is the one that's going to bring in God's kingdom. He's announced him as this Messiah. And yet, if God's kingdom is here, then why is it that John's the one that's sitting in a jail cell when he's the one that acts like God is king and Herod is still the one that's sitting on the throne? This confusing situation actually leads John to send some messengers to Jesus. This is what they say. Pick it up here at Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? Let's just stop there. John's sitting here in prison, but before this, John was the guy that baptized Jesus. John saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of a dove. He heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is the guy that when he saw Jesus coming, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who he said that the, the one who comes after me is actually before me, and I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This is that guy. And now he's been sitting in jail. And I think that some of what he was expecting to happen probably hasn't happened yet. All the way to the point where now he's sending messengers saying, hey, are you the one, that the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? He's confused. Like the rest of us probably are right now. The kingdom of God is supposed to be here. Why, what is going on? And so listen to what Jesus says. Verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So Jesus answers John's question by showing him, hey, the, the, king, the kingdom is here. Look at what's happening. All this stuff that you were expecting, it's happening right now. The blind are, are regaining their sight. The lame are starting to walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf here. The dead are raised. The poor are having the gospel preached to them. This sounds like the kingdom of God has arrived. Yet John still sits in a jail cell. The reality that we see in this story is that with Jesus, the kingdom of God has come, but it has not yet come in fullness. It's already come, but it's not yet come in fullness. You see, the new age where God rules perfectly as king and the curse of sin is done away with has started to invade this age. And the evidence of what Jesus is doing, it shows it there right? This new world that we're going towards is a place that's not going to have the, the blindness afflicting people, or it's not going to have these lepers having to deal with their sores, and the, the poor having the good news preached to them. All these kind of things are marks of the kingdom that it has started to invade our current age. Yet we see that this old age is still hanging on with a death grip. And so we're at an overlapping of ages. I have a graphic here on the screen to show you what's going on, and that we live between these ages of the first and second comings of Christ. And this is where John was living. And that, yes, so much of what the kingdom is going to look like has started to be ushered in. 
Jesus showed that. And we, in many ways, still experience that today. God has given us his spirit. He transforms our lives. There is so much good that the Lord has done in the world through the work of his spirit and through people that have been responsive to him. We have seen the kingdom of God moving forward here. Yet we also see the effects of darkness that is constantly fighting against. And so now that we have a better understanding of what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying, hey, it's, it's here, it's starting, it's coming, but we don't know when the fullness of that is actually going to get here yet. But do you remember the other part of his sermon? It wasn't just that the kingdom of God is at hand. He, he had a call to action. He said, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, this is the only reasonable response to the information that Jesus has given us. Right? Like any good preacher, he's, he's laid out his information first. Let me show you this, what's going on here. Let me tell you. And now he's saying, this is what you need to do in light of that. The kingdom of God's here. It's at hand. So what you need to do is repent and believe the gospel. He's letting us know that God's time of absolute, perfect rule over this world is almost here, but he's also letting us know that we better get in line with what it means to live in this kingdom. The fact that he calls us to repentance suggests that we are actually unfit for this coming kingdom. You see, it sounds like an amazing place to be, but the problem is that if any one of us was there, we would screw it up, wouldn't we? This is this perfect place, and you bring me as this imperfect person into it. I've just tainted it. There's a wonderful future coming, but unless we undergo major change, we are not going to be ready for it. And consequently, we won't be there to enjoy it. And so we see the message is repent. Repent, it's here. You need to change. You need to stop living in this way where you were king of your own life. You need to reject the way of your ancestors, Adam and Eve, and so many that have come after them as saying, I'm going to be God. You turn away from that. You say, no, God is going to be my king. I'm no longer about myself anymore. I'm going to die to self. I'm going to crucify this flesh and its sinful desires, and I'm going to follow Jesus because I know that you're king. That's so why Jesus says that truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We must undergo a massive transformation, more so than what we can do even just by repenting. Because guess what? Repenting is great, and we need to change, and we need to turn. Our hearts must start to desire something else, but even there, we're still dirty. And unless there's something that's going to allow us to be reborn and to be made into new creatures, we're not making it. And so I love that he also says, believe in the gospel. Your repentance alone isn't going to be enough, but praise God for the gospel that gives us the chance to be a part of this kingdom. You see, Jesus said that for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the good news. Not just that we need to repent and get our act together. People have been trying to do that for a long time and yet we can never seem to break this cycle of how messed up our world is. But there's something else that's coming in. It's not just us changing. It's that he's going to come and rescue us. That Jesus would come and die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven and that we could be people that, that are made righteous, that are made clean and made fit for this new kingdom. And so I told you, that this evening is about casting vision for our church this semester. 
I want to help you see the destination that we're aiming for as a church. I want to help you see the place that we're trying to get to. And quite simply, our vision here at H2O is to see this kingdom come. We want to see God's eternal kingdom fully realized. That's our vision, right? Like we've seen that this kingdom has started to come in here, but we want to see it in its fullness. The stuff that we read in Isaiah 11, that's the vision that we have. That's the world that we're trying to work towards. You know, this kingdom, it pops up in all sorts of places, not just in Isaiah. We can go to Revelation. I told you that God already shows us what his vision is. He showed us in Isaiah. Well, he shows us again in the New Testament Revelation about what we're moving towards. And I just want to read this for you guys because I want this to sink into your soul to say, this is the trajectory that we are moving towards. Look at this in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And what a beautiful picture that is. That God is dwelling among men. And he wipes away every tear from our eyes. Revelation 22 goes on to give us more detail about this coming kingdom. It says, Then he showed me a river, of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing the twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's perfect and eternal kingdom. I love the fact that he shows us the tree of life is there. I referenced Genesis 3 earlier, when when we sinned and we said, no, we want to be king rather than God. And we were cast out of the Garden of Eden and the the very ground itself was cursed to bring forth thorns and thistles. There's something interesting that happens in that passage is that God intentionally blocks us from eating from the tree of life. He puts a flaming sword that blocks any entrance back into the Garden of Eden. Well, look at what he does. It's not that he doesn't want us to have life. It's that he wants us to have life eternal with him in perfect fellowship with him. And that it's in this place that the tree of life is there for the healing of the nations, that we would reign with him forever and ever. Now, this is the world that I want to live in. I want to live in that world, and God promises that it will come. We long for this kingdom to come. We long for this kingdom to come along with every Christian that's walked before us. 
As a matter of fact, when we were gathered together a few weeks ago, we prayed as a church through Acts 1-8, and I just need to revisit that again because it shows some of this longing that the early Christians had for this kingdom. You see, in Acts 1-6, this is after Jesus has been crucified, he's risen from the dead, they're with him, he says, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They're asking, is this the time when that kingdom that you, you know, we kind of know about, you told us about this in Isaiah and the thing about the lion and the fatted calf, is, is that the time that this is coming in? And their question makes sense, right? Because they've seen this battle playing out. They just saw Jesus crucified and it was a stark reminder of the current age, right? They, they saw the, the earthly king, Caesar, and his delegates of the Roman government crucify the true king, Jesus. But then they also, three days later, saw the true King Jesus raised from the dead and prove that he was able to overcome all powers of darkness. And so naturally, as they see this triumph, it makes sense that they would ask, is now the time? Like, this is it. This has got to be it, right? But this is Jesus' response to their question. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You see, I want you to get this here. When I say that the kingdom is our vision, the destination that we're moving towards, we're working towards, I don't want you to misunderstand me. We cannot bring that kingdom in on our own. Okay, we can't do that, right? We saw this description. This is the heavenly city. It's, it's coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for husband. There's no matter how, good, how many good works we do or anything like that, we can't ultimately bring that. God has got to be the one that brings that about. And even here, they understand that. It is now the time that's going to happen. While we may not be able to be the people that do that, God is going to bring that in in his perfect timing whenever he sees it as fit. We do have a role that we get to play. We do have a role that we get to play in making this world reflect that kingdom as much as we possibly can in the days that he's given us here. And so this is why he says, you know, it's not for you to know that, what time that's going to happen, but I do have something for you to do. You're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. What does it mean to be his witness? Or his witness were people that are testifying and showing who Jesus is. We're giving testimony about King Jesus and this coming King. And so we do that both with our words and with our actions. <clears throat> and so while the, the, our vision is the kingdom of God, we can't ultimately bring that in by ourselves, but we do have a mission that we're going to focus on every day. And our mission is to help one another become fully devoted followers of King Jesus. Because as we do that, his kingdom starts to inch more and more and more here. We don't know when that day is that's going to come in fullness. But every time that a person comes to life group and experiences the blessings of deep friendship and loneliness starts to be driven out, we're getting a little bit closer. We're getting a little bit more of that kingdom here. Every time a person overcomes an addiction that they were struggling with, a pornography addiction, an eating disorder, we're moving a little bit closer to this kingdom that God has coming. Every time a person comes to know Jesus and submits to him as their Lord and Savior and says, I'm not going to sit on the throne of my life anymore, but I want you to sit on the throne, we're moving a little bit closer 
to the picture of this coming kingdom. Every time compassion is extended and someone is lifted out of poverty and suffering, we are moving a little bit closer to this coming kingdom. And every time we even do something as simple as coming together, like we do every Sunday, to sing praises to our King, this world is becoming a little bit more like this coming kingdom. The fullness of God's kingdom is going to be realized in His time, on His schedule, when He decides to bring it about. But right now, we still get to choose to live as loyal subjects of our true king. And we get to help one another in this mission. We're at war. There's no doubt about it. We live in a time of of two ages that are overlapping. And war is difficult. It drags on. We're in a spiritual war. It can be hard to keep on fighting sometimes. You know, I love studying history I was a social studies ed major, and it's something I've continued to, to pursue and read about and watch documentaries and listen to podcasts and all these kind of things. And over break, I was uh, doing a lot of studying on the American Revolution. And uh, the war was a major struggle for the 13 colonies. It was difficult. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, it got off to a hot start in Boston. Things looked like they were going great. And then, all of a sudden, the full might of the British Empire started to land on us. They're like, ooh, we might be in over our heads. Things went poorly. George Washington, by 1776, had lost New York City. And after that uh, defeat, he had about 11,000 troops that deserted and walked off. And he knew that as uh, the end of the year was coming up, it was December, that his enlistments were running out. And if people didn't re-enlist for the army, which was totally getting demolished by Britain in every battle, that he knew this war was going to be lost. And so so did Thomas Paine, who was an uh, influential writer at the time. And he wrote something called uh, The American Crisis. And he penned these famous words to help the troops realize that they needed to not give up the fight and continue on in this war. This is what he said. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated." You see what he did there? I love those words. What he's doing is he's pointing them back towards the vision. What is it you're doing? You know, if if you look at your circumstances right now, you're cold. You're fighting in a sloppy army that's a joke compared to this British empire that you're fighting. We don't know if we're going to be able to sustain this. We don't know if we're going to be able to pay you. We don't know if we're going to be able to get you shoes. But you need to remember what it is that you're fighting for. And that there's this beautiful thing called freedom that you can throw off the crown you can, uh, of, of England and you can put away that tyranny and we have the, the opportunity, as he wrote in a different pamphlet, to start the world over. Remember that. He encouraged the men to fight and with that, they decided, you know what? Many of them decided they were going to hang around again. And with this, George Washington had that uh, pamphlet read aloud to all of his troops and uh, it preceded his famous uh, victory against the Hessians at Trenton. 
on Christmas Day. If you've ever seen that painting of George Washington standing on a boat looking like that on the icy river, that, that was the battle that came after the men were rallied to keep fighting. And many years later, and many, after many more struggles, they finally obtained that freedom that they were fighting for. But man, what a, what a greater kingdom we're fighting for even now than what those men were in 1776. A solid, compelling vision for the future is what helps us carry on when the everyday tasks are difficult, whether there's something that's beating against us or whether it's just the mundane drum of daily life. We have to keep focused on the vision of what's coming. I love this quote from Anton de Saint-Exupéry. He says, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. 